0: Hello there. I'm D-Ready and welcome to Inside Intercom. Our guest today is no stranger to this podcast. In fact, today's episode will be his third time appearing as a profiled guest with us, which is a first. Bob's previous chats with Des Trainer have covered how to unpack customer motivations and the jobs to be done framework. Both great episodes, which are worth a listen if you haven't already heard them. In this episode, Bob joins Dez again to chat about his new book, Demand Side Sales 101, Stop Selling and Help Your Customers Make Progress. As you might expect, it's a fascinating discussion. So let's head over to the studio and hear from Bob and Dez.
1: Welcome to the show, Bob. It's a pleasure to have you back.
2: Thanks, Dez. Just uh, to be honest, happy to be back and uh, love, to, love to chat about all this stuff. Awesome. So... Maybe
1: let's just start with a very brief background. I mean, I know plenty about you, but you've had quite a varied career. Where did it start and where are you today?
2: Uh, So the way I've been kind of explaining it is uh, I've been breaking things for probably 50 years. I've been fixing things for 45 years, but I've been building things for 30 years. And so for me, I've I've always uh, wanted to build and have been building. And so to be honest, it's it's one of those things that when I was very young, I was a little too creative, if you will. And I had a few close head brain injuries that prevented me from reading and writing. And so out of that, it forced me to actually to talk to people and learn through very different methods and tools. And from that, I've not only worked on over 3,500 different products, but I've been building methods and tools and things to, to help uh, bring products and services to markets. So to be honest, right now I teach mostly. And so I I teach at Northwestern and then I guest lecture at Harvard, MIT, and I was at Emory and uh, Columbia and some others. But at the same time, I also have a small uh, agency where we actually work on uh, products with people.
1: 3,500 products. I have yeah. to drill in here. That feels yeah. like a, a different product every day. Are, yeah. I'm sure you're guessing of all the things I'm curious about on a range of yeah. like, how the hell do you keep track? Uh, are these yeah. all software, hardware? You know, What do you call a product?
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so it's a great question. And yeah, it's not many people have ever probed into it, but uh, I started actually at Ford Motor Company and, for me, a product was any one of the components that basically you would go into building a system. And so part of it would be like bearings and then we'd work on rear view mirrors and then I'd go work on uh, pistons and and then cooling systems and then suspension. And So to me, I consider all those kind of different products.
1: And like their products in the sense that they have an actual job to do, right? Like you need right. your indicator to do a certain thing, there's the success right. criteria, you know, okay, that that makes sense. That's right.
2: And so, And so I would actually go... And I was part of the, the new product team. And so we would not only design things out, but then we work with suppliers. And then you'd kind of fly all over the world to actually, you know, kind of get those lines up and running and do that kind of stuff. But I would, in any one week, I might work on, you know, four or five products. And it would be one of those things where um, I was taught some methods by Dr. Genichi Taguchi about uh, design of experiments and how to prototype. And so a lot of my work was they would get the basics down and then, we'd come in and kind of do these set of tests or set of prototypes that then would actually help us kind of improve performance and and cut costs simultaneously. And so, you know, a lot of the products that I worked on were in the seven years when I was at Ford.
1: Right. And the thing that I think surprised most for our listeners is how like generalizable some of your methods or approaches or sort of principles are. Like, am I right saying you've worked on everything from, and maybe I'll misspeak here, but like something like as random as like the Patriot missile, all the way through to like an email client, right? Like that's
2: right. So I've worked on like the guidance system for the Patriot missile and radar absorbing material for the stealth bomber. I've worked on the space shuttle main engine and the solid rocket boosters, and then I've worked on uh, Pokemon mac and cheese for craft. I've worked on <laughs> uh, you know uh, email clients. I've worked on and and part of it is this notion of because I can't read, I feel like I have to put everything back to uh, first principles and so so it's one of those things where we were talking about it yesterday or last week and we were talking about like a conversation and the way that we listen to the words and we think about the words is somebody's talking about like well we need trust to make this happen and I'm like okay is trust an input to this system or is it really an output of the system and they're like what are you talking about I'm like well right. as we're doing this event, Having trust come in becomes something I have to screen for, but if I have to build trust, then I have to actually have mechanisms in there to build trust. And so this whole aspect of seeing things so generally and then basically seeing how they work over through time is kind of the the secret sauce, if you will.
1: That makes a lot of sense. One question, I guess, to get us closer to today's topic is like a, a large part of product design is like seeing opportunities or seeing the unmet needs of the customer or yeah. working out basically where there's like white space where people aren't talking. I think it was when I heard you were working on a book that was about sales, it really resonated with me straight away because I just, I think it's an area that's like lacking in in like there's so much inside knowledge on sales. And when I go and talk to our sales team, I learn... So much about mm-hmm. how they navigate accounts, how they make deals happen, et cetera. like how they set traps, how they manage expectations, how they defend, how they go on the offensive. All like it's there's so much there, but they're not the type of people who are gonna, like, you know, publish heaps of blog posts about how they do it. Uh, yeah. and, and, and like, so when I hear like you're working on this book, I was like, this is what's needed. Someone needs to actually unpack this a little bit and, and explain some things here. Yeah. Uh, we last spoke, I think it was like four years ago. How did you end up? Coming to the decision to co-author a book with Greg.
2: Yeah. So so this is one of those things where, to be honest, it's, uh, I go back to Clay's office. I was uh, lucky enough to have four hours a quarter with Clay and for almost 27 years. And, and one of the things we came back with is like me having done seven startups was I always would come back to like the hardest thing about starting a business is sales. Like mm-hmm. it's just one of those things. And then we, you know, turn to Clay and look at him and go like, so why aren't there sales professors? And he just looked at me like, like, that's a really good question. And I'm like, so wait a second. Like, and you start to dig into, you pull that thread and you start to realize like there's very, very few sales professors, that, especially like 10 years ago, there were virtually none. And so part of it was, is what, what was it about sales that made it so unique that we weren't even willing to teach it at business school? But at the same time, the fact is, is like every startup and every, you know, almost every company struggles with sales one way or another. And and so part of it was to kind of dig into that, you know, that, that realm. I think the other part was, is if I reflect on my experience, it was sales was always the hardest thing. And at some point it it didn't become sales anymore. And so I had to go back and kind of almost, you know, sit on the couch and think back to like, like when did it stop hurting? <laughs> when did it stop feeling so icky? And, and, and that's kind of where we kind of said like, Clay, Clay, I think said it best is one of the reasons why they don't teach it is because there's no theory behind it. It's all practice. It's all techniques. It's all, and it's all specific to your product and your world. And, and so a lot of times people would say it's it's a trade. Sales is a trade. There's no theory behind it. And so it's like, well, what if we actually took jobs theory and flipped it and said, well, let's understand how people buy and then build, you know, basically use that as the foundation and then come back and say like, all right, how do we set up our sales approach? to help people buy as opposed to sell our product. And once you started to get into that pool of knowledge, you started to realize it was it was a lot more art than there were science for sure.
1: So an interesting framing you had there was like this idea of sales as a trade. I think that resonates in in how I hear people speaking about sales. However, like obviously buying isn't, it's, you know, your customers don't go on courses on how to buy. So like, you know, the approach for customers is almost always the same. They have like some idea of what they want out of a purchase. And they, you know, in, in a sense, sales is like a bridge between them and, and the, the value that they hope to get. Right. Early in the book, you break down this idea of demand-side sales and supply-side sales. Could you talk about what the differences are there?
2: So I, I would say that I grew up and I was trained on the supply side. right? And supply side is this whole notion of like, build a product and, and they will come. You know, I can't have demand without the product, and that, that everything I would define would be from the from the product side or from the supply side of the world. And so, if I'm building mattresses, it would be like, well, who needs a mattress? And then we'd look over the wall and we'd see people and market segments, and we'd see personas, and we'd see all this stuff. But but at some point in time, we'd never go granularly enough to understand like what causes somebody to say, today's the day to buy a mattress. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is we though we want to be customer focused we still actually have the lens or the reference point or the kernel that we use to define everything is through the product. And so what you start to realize is that, that, that when we do that, we actually have a bias. And that bias then kind of forces us to think about how to be then more efficient. But when you flip to the demand side and you just say, like, what causes somebody to say, today's the day they buy a mattress? You start to realize, like, well, first of all, it's not just a mattress, it's about sleep. And so they don't worry about the mattress, they say, how do I sleep better? And the things that they use to sleep better are everything from a noise machine to ZQL to Scotch to working out to a new mattress. And so you start to see that competitive set is completely different. And, and the industries that I compete with are actually completely different. And you start to realize, like, how do I actually help people make progress? And you start to realize that, that being in the mattress business, I might have to be in some other businesses as well. So, right? And so... It's this this almost like, you know, two different worlds colliding. And so people keep talking about product market fit. And when you go deep into the world, in that world, you start to realize there's, there's actually very little fit in, in a lot of cases. And despite that, we always are making trade-offs. And so to me, it felt very productish and say like, how do we actually help customers make those trade-offs as opposed to design the ideal product experience, which to be honest, doesn't exist.
1: I'm gonna to skip to later in the book because there's a question I want to ask that touches on this. You talk about sort of the three energies in a purchase, right? Yeah. There's like status, utility, and what's your social, emotional, and functional. Social, emotional, and functional. Yeah. So my, my my question, just when you mentioned mattresses, it reminded me of uh, say Casper. Are you familiar with Casper? Right? The oh G-Z. yeah,
2: yeah. And yep. like,
1: and maybe like, there's a, a more abstract question around D2C branding in in general. What I notice about my friends who have Casper is their purchase looks very different than it would if they went into an actual mattress store. If they go into a mattress store it's a combination of price plus brand plus maybe salesperson plus like the whole jump on the bed, try to simulate a sleep, oh, yeah. whatever. All, all the weird shit that people do: spring count, uh, how many layers is it? Is a memory foam? All that sort of stuff. Yeah. And they kind of consume all of this, you know. Let's say information. A lot of it might be like psychosomatic or pseudo babble. Yeah, like yeah, they, yeah. they drink it all in, and and then I I'm convinced at least half of it is there to let them think that they made a considered purchase, regardless yeah. of whether or not they did. What Casper has done, I think, has like bypassed that and said, we are a brand that's all about better sleep. And that's yeah. all, all say that's all they try and do. And like that's why their next products I have been like, you know, they've gone from mattresses to like pillowcases to night lights. Yeah. And I'm sure they'll probably do yeah. like air purifiers and all sorts of stuff yeah. like that. But what what's interesting is on the demand side, the customers, there's almost like a piece to this now. It's like it's yeah. you know, in the same way people just like you know you, you make one choice about Apple, and the next, next thing you just buy Apple, and you don't have to think about what headphones you buy. you just buy Apple or whatever. Okay. I wonder, like is there an element of like using what you described? Is there a way to just build a brand that kind of bypasses the complexity of the sale by basically saying, "Don't worry, we got you. We're the only people who think about this?
2: Yes, I, I think that's, that's what Apple does in a lot of cases. They're, they understand the struggling moments that people have throughout the process. So so think about walking in, there's 40 mattresses, there's there's one or two other people in the store. You actually haven't bought a mattress in 10 or 15 years. You don't even know any of the language behind it. Like there's so much anxiety wrapped around it. And you're like, okay, I, like, I don't know how to make this decision. And I don't know how to make it without, you know, feeling, touching, whatever. And then you start to realize like, okay, I still don't know what I'm doing. And so Casper, what Casper did is they actually asked you very meaningful questions. So for example, they didn't ask if you were hot, right? They'd ask the question like, do you stick your leg out at night? It's a very right. subtle, different thing. But the notion is is like, it's something to say like, wait, how, how do you know like that's what I do? Because when you say, are you hot? Well, sometimes I'm hot, sometimes I'm not. So how do you answer it when you say, are you hot at night or not? It's like, mm-hmm. but like, do you stick your leg out? That makes people realize like you are paying attention. Mm-hmm. And it's something very subtle. And so to me, it's these things that actually Help people realize like you understand my problem. And then at the same time, if you do that and you can start to use language to talk about the outcome that I want, now you actually build my trust. And so part of this is that we end up instead of building trust, we end up trying to explain what a mattress is. What are springs? What is an intercoil spring? How does a hybrid mattress with foam and springs fit and why it's gonna be better? It's like, no, 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 like
1: no one cares. Right, like
2: it's trying to be the reason it's the what I would call the old feature and benefit kind of language. But the reality is, is like they're they're trying to actually educate us about their world. And I really don't wanna know. I don't. I, I just wanna sleep. And and the other half of the problem is being able to buy a new mattress when your partner doesn't think there's anything wrong with the bed. <laughs> All right, All right. You're like, wait a second, like, like, well, God, I can't sleep at night, and so you start to realize, like, the the true competitor is like the barker Lounger. It's yeah, the yeah. couch. It's like, well, I'm going to sleep on the couch. I'm like, wait, what? What? And you start to realize there's certain things that go on. So, so being able to understand what are the things that lead you up to saying today's the day I need a new mattress, and then what are those things you're hoping for, and not not ideally, but what does progress look like? What most people don't realize is. The new mattress just has to be better than the old mattress, mm-hmm. and so the notion of having it shipped and literally being able to help people get rid of the old one and then putting a new mattress, putting the new mattress down, is like it's amazing compared to the old mattress. And so right. they don't need forty to choose from; they need they need to know that you you've listened and that they that here's your recommendation. And to be honest, you sleep better.
1: Yeah, like a classic approach, maybe not classic, but like a bad approach to selling a mattress would be to ask the the buyer, hey, what do you want out of a mattress? And they'd say, oh, yeah. I don't know, and like, and the whole conversation kind of gets derailed because anything, once the salesperson does that, the buyer feels that they're now set in a trap where no matter yeah. what they say, it just so happens that the product has it. Whereas a, a much more yeah. domain-specific question, like do you stick your leg out or or, or whatever, is so much more like insightful and incisive. It, you know, it cuts right to the like. Oh, so you actually are an expert. I got it. Yeah. But it's like it's a question that yeah. is also. It's not an expert in the sense of like, do you want seventy-five or eighty, you know, springs per square inch or whatever? Because like, that's people don't know the answer. It's it's a real relatable sort of simple way to say we're speaking your language in a
2: sense. Well, and the crazy part is, there's only really three different jobs a mattress gets hired for. One is I'm getting a new bedroom set, and oh by the way, it's like uh, I used to have a queen size and now I need a king, so of course I need a new mattress there. But the mattress is like it's the mayonnaise on the sandwich. It's not the it's not Mm -hmm. the main thing, right? The other one is, look, I've got, I got to buy a mattress for somebody else. My mother-in-law is coming to visit. My kid finally needs a mattress. Like uh, it's for somebody else. And it's like, okay, it's got to be just good enough that they don't complain. And then there's the one for me. And -hmm. the one for me is very different than those other two. And so what happens is they merge all that crap together. And so you end up not being able to understand And So if I can't sleep and I need a new mattress, I'm willing to actually learn about it because it's a big deal for me.
1: Right. You'll invest the time. Um, exactly. Talk to me about this idea of, and like, just for listeners of the podcast, please understand, we'll tie all this back to software in a little bit, but I think it's good <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. To, sort of, to ground ourselves in a, in a, in a more typical domain. Uh, talk to me about the struggling moment and your framework there.
2: Yeah, so, so the interesting part to me is that, to me, all innovations have to revolve around a struggling moment. And that a struggling moment actually exists irrelevant of supply. So the way we, we've been taught, if you will, in academia is that well, supply and demand are connected and price is a function of supply and, and demand. But the fact this is like Paul LeBlanc, who started Southern New Hampshire, or he's a president of Southern New Hampshire University, has grown it from basically about uh, uh, 25, 2,800 students to 200, almost 200,000 students Wow! By, by literally understanding how many people want to go back to school or back to college and get a degree, but can't. And what can I do to actually make it easier for them? And so this whole notion of the, the, the demand is that it's been there for years, but nobody's been able to tap into it because they wanted to serve it in a different way. And so my thing is there's well more than 200,000 students wanting to do that. But the reality is being able to see where is the demand, where's the struggling moment, and most people don't talk about it. So think about it. how many people want to take a picture but couldn't. Mm-hmm. they didn't talk about basically you know in the camera side they say well you know what's the f stop what's the sh- shutter speed what's the you know focal length what's the Operator, sensor, all all that, all. Yeah. and it's like no i just want to get a clear picture of my kid playing soccer <laughs> right right and, and so it's all that kind of thing where there's struggling moments that are out there and people aren't paying attention to them because they're looking at the world through their product
1: so that is like in the case of a typical university trying to reach this market, they're like, well, they need to come here on campus for like 40 hours a week. It's almost like Every product has baked into it like a set of assumptions. That's kind mm-hmm. of what makes it a good fit for the people who currently use it. Exactly. And, uh, but it's also like the things that make it a good fit for some people make, make it like it may be a bad fit for other people. Mm-hmm. And as, as a result, it's really tricky. Like, you know, it, it it would be hard for like MIT to pivot to serve all these new customers right. because they've probably built a brand, a campus, everything centered around a set of assumptions that might not be true. Uh, similarly, like for like Canon or, or whoever, like who make you know, high quality cameras, yeah. they're probably making a few different assumptions. One of which is you're willing to spend a couple of grand. Another one is you're going to carry around more than one lens and all this, all, all this sort of stuff. So, when something like say iPhone Portrait Mode comes out, it's it's a hard one for them to accept because yep. the purists will say that's nowhere near as good quality as what we do. But the users of the iPhone Portrait Mode will be like, but it's of all the things available to me, this
2: is the best. That's right. Like, I mean that, you, yeah. you have a you have a little girl, you know how you're running around crazy. The fact is like, okay, hold on a second, let me get the camera out. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it just like, yeah. it's just, it just it's just and so the, the thing is, is you gotta look for so the way we frame it is non consumption. How many people wanna make progress with something but can't because of access or knowledge or inability to to be able to do it? And so you start to realize there's there's moments that you struggle with a lot of things and we just accept it. Mm-hmm. So it would have been great to have a picture of that, but the fact is, is paying attention to where those struggling moments are, they're, they're the seed for all innovation and they're actually the seed for why people buy something new. And so if if I'm happy with something and it works and I literally run out of tide, I'm just going to buy more tide. Mm-hmm. But if it's not working, that's when I decide to say like, okay, I got to do something about it. And so real, real growth comes from addressing struggling moments. So
1: what is a good way for like an individual, like let's say you're listening to this podcast and you want to start a startup. Yeah. How would you scan your own life for struggling moments that like, let's say, are at least, you know, somewhat mass marketable as in it's not just the Des trainer problem. It's, it's yeah. there's more people like me out there and therefore I can build a business.
2: Right. And so so part of this is is being able to not only identify and, and, and to be honest, articulate, your struggling moment because a lot of times there's just no words to talk about like how hard it is to tie your shoe if you haven't been taught how to tie your shoe and how much Velcro feels better, <laughs> right? which you right. you think you're stupid, but there is like no, I can't do it, right? <laughs> I think there's things where you start to realize like who else struggles with it and what else do people do to try to solve it, and so a lot of times when we're we're talking about new technology or we're talking about a new business, it's like okay, what are people gonna fire? that once, they, once your product is there, and let's go interview kind of why people hire that product, because that's the place in which it starts. And so can we actually uh, identify and frame the, the struggling moments around why competition is, you know, what your competition is doing, and then from there as people actually start buying your product to stay very current on what are those underlying causal mechanisms to say today's the day they're buying your product. The, the other thing to me is interest doesn't actually articulate progress just because they're interested they have to actually put energy, the social emotional and functional energy into do it. So when you give away things for free, it doesn't actually help because yeah. people are using it but they're not but like so my thing is is basecamp did a great thing where they basically said we're going to create Basecamp personal you get one project and you can use it as long as you want. And the whole aspect here is like now people invest to basically plan their wedding or buying a house or putting on an addition or planning a trip. But the reality is as they start to use it, they realize how it would be useful in their business.
1: So when you mentioned like looking at competitors or like things that people will hire or fire, like in the case of say, like let's say base Basecamp for a wedding, the things that got fired might be like shared Google Docs, shared, I don't know, like Excel sheet or some, some, some junk like that, right? Some yeah. extra like yeah. non-purpose built tools that happen to be hackable to make work yeah. for this. How do you tap into that, like how would you say like functional energy there? Because clearly like no one sits down in front of Microsoft Excel to like do up a wedding plan thinking, thinking they're using the right tool for the job. Yeah. But I think what they are thinking is whatever it is I need to do, I know how to hack this product into doing it for me. That's right. So
2: one of the areas I'm working on right now is vacations. Like how, right. like, how do you do vacations? And, and the first thing you start to realize is more than 70% of the people literally just bolt a vacation on to somebody else's planned vacation. So like there's only 30% of the people who really plan a vacation yep. and everybody else goes along for the ride. Mm-hmm. Right. But the real is those planners, the thing is how do they decide where to go? Right. And why are they going? And you start to realize that most sites start with, you know, where do you want to go? Like, you know, Expedia, where do you want to go? The real question is, why do you want to go? What are you right. trying to accomplish? Is, and, and, and most people say, well, that's obvious. Uh, I'll, I can guarantee you from digging in deep, it's not obvious. Sometimes it's about reconnecting. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's about you know, talking about the future. Sometimes it's about relaxing, but your definition of relaxing and my definition of relaxing are completely different. And so you start right. to realize by understanding that. So people can hack parts of it, and it's for coordination right? Like you're coming, I'm coming here, we'll buy the tickets. here's And it's, it's part of the information, but the real stuff gets down to when you start to actually figure out how, how you're going to sequence things and the trade-offs that are there. And so at some point in time, you either end up doing things for other people or, or doing things because you want to do it and just other people come along. And so part of this is people can hack it for a period, but I, I believe that most people don't go on big vacations because they have a hard time figuring out how to actually figure out and align everybody on why they're going. I 100%
1: agree. I actually have a lot of energy in this place because I'm probably the one idiot of my friends who actually tries to like, you know, uh, machine dog everyone onto the same plan. And like, you know, it's because I work in software, it's, it's always the area where I'm like, if ever I, I'm not working on in intercom, my next project is definitely going to be a group holiday planning app where like multiple people log in it's got calendars it's got a google maps where you can add locations suggest locations it's like you know everyone's flight itineraries are there we can like have a shareable map on our phones where you can see where everyone else is staying and all like the solution is so clear in my head but what's interesting to me is like I don't know if I could get anyone else to use that because I think they'd be happy enough just to check their like their iMessage or their WhatsApp or whatever right. and see what's going on, right?
2: So, here, so here's the thing is, it's it's a very small group, but the, that small group has huge influence. Right. Because, because you're doing it, everybody else is happy not to have to... Following
1: learn.
2: along, right. So is, this is where you take the looped in feature like in Basecamp, and, and you yeah. just you loop people into it, but you still have complete control. The, like the anxiety moments are like, okay, I bought my tickets. Did you buy your tickets? Like, wait, hold yeah, yeah, on. Yeah, and, and so there's this whole notion of like the nuclear key thing where it's like you have everybody, everybody says, go, 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 go. And then, and then you do it. Like there's, there's, there's very clear moments where people will be, basically say they're in or out. And it's like the last thing you want to do is somebody who said they're in all the way along and you divide everything by 12 and now they're out. And it's like they really didn't want to come, but they didn't know how to say no. It's like all yes. that kind of anxiety of like, how do you actually help make that more acceptable as opposed to like the peer pressure, that social pressure? It's, 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 there's a lot of struggling moments around it that are kind of wonderful to, to kind of d- dive into. So I really would love to be part of that. And I have many, many vacation interviews because that's the training case study we're doing for as we start to build out kind of our training stuff is, is around vacations because it's just so. So horrible.
1: <laughs> so, in these interviews, so like we're, we're going to kind of get more grounded in the software now. So, like, yeah. let's say sticking with this hypothetical Desert yeah. group holiday travel up. so as not to break any NDAs <laughs> you're under. Mark the day. The thing you taught me for the longest time through all the interviews we did together talking to yeah. intercom customers was I would accept an answer like, yeah, that sounds pretty cool. And oh. you would immediately say, stop. And I'm like, yeah. what's wrong? Uh, the dude said it sounded cool, Bob. Why are you angry? What is your thing with, with words like cool and easy and smooth?
2: Yeah. So so my, my thing is, is is what people say and what they mean are completely different. And so you start to realize that people add things in there or they add words like, oh, that's cool. It's like, well, what does that mean? Like cool in the context of like, I want to follow or cool in the context of like, I want to be the first adopter. Like cool has like 20 different definitions. And so you start to realize like we talk in this way, that's very. It seems very specific, but it's actually still very abstract. So I'm doing an interview around vacations a couple of weeks ago, and somebody goes like, "Well, you know, we were going to go. We went to Thailand, and we went. When and when'd you go? Like, well, we went in October because it was the it was the cheapest time to go. I'm like, oh, and so let it lie a little bit, and I come back and say, you said it was the cheapest time to go. Like, how did you know? Well, somebody said. I'm like, well, how much did you save? Because I don't know. It's like, well, how much? I <laughs> didn't have a budget, and so. They gave you the impression that they were frugal about this decision, and it's almost like the lie they told themselves to say, we're going to go yeah. here because this, but it's like, at some point in time, they had actually no idea whether it was cheaper or not. They had no idea how much they even, like, they said, do you have a budget? Well, I want to keep it under $5,000. i am like, okay. Like, did you? I'm like, no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Right, and so there's yeah. this aspect here of like, like, like they they say things so almost like confidently, like, "Well, this is a five thousand dollar trip." I was like, no idea, and then when you when you ask them to really add it up, it was like eight grand. Like, yeah. oh well, and so you start to realize as much as people say they budget, they have these. It's almost like back of napkin budgeting as opposed to spreadsheet budgeting. Mm-hmm. And so you can build the spreadsheet, but at some point in time, now what happens? You actually start to suck the life out of it. Because now you're worried about every dollar of where we're going and what we're doing. And it's like, no, let's just go have fun. And it's like, okay. And so there's a difference between pooling the money and what you realize is people pool money more than they actually, you know, uh, uh, make decisions about exactly where to spend the money.
1: Right. And, and, and more generally, there's a, a difference between, I guess, like... They'll say words like cheap, but they don't articulate like what that actually means to them. Okay. Like, in, is it cheap just under a certain threshold, or is like the lowest available thing, or do they factor in quality at all? And like, I I know like the thing we used to get caught with, uh, like again six seven years ago, was we'd ask questions like, "Would you use this feature?" Of which the answer, like you know, we should have been suspicious because like one hundred percent of the features, one hundred percent of the time, the answer was yes, and it was almost always followed with, "Yeah, it seems cool," and I think like. You know, and I know you have a whole uh, chapter in the appendix on this, but like you talk about like unpacking words like easy, yeah, yeah. fast, convenient, healthy, smooth, quick, yeah. handy is one we see a lot. Uh, like, oh yeah, that'll be handy. Awesome. And I think like it's it's probably like when you're trying to identify like the root of someone's frustration or their struggling moment, and you're yeah. you know, and you're you're trying to validate your own idea by showing it to them, even if they're like way deep in their own struggling moment you still need to look for a much more specific declaration of intent done like, sure, it sounds fun or whatever, right?
2: Yeah, the, the key is intent. What's the intent behind it? So for example, it, it, it's not only listening to what people say, but how they say it. Because in the transcript, I can say like, God, it, was, it was really, it was good versus, you know, it was good. And it like almost says the same thing in the transcript. But like the first one, you have to go like, all right, what was wrong? I mean, you... you you can see by the the pause and the going down and the like, and so this whole aspect of being able to understand and and see the human side of this is really really important because their intent is 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 actually more is is easier to see than their words. They're, mm-hmm. We're focusing on their words, and it's not the words; it's that intent. And so I think that's part of it. I think the other part is marketing. Most of this comes from what we would call as marketing research, right? And when you think about marketing research, the fact is, is they need to know that it's handy or they need to know that it's fun or that it's easy and that those words resonate. But as a product person and or a salesperson, I actually need like, how do I make it handy? What, what the heck does handy mean? Like, what are the things that, like, have to be there for them to say handy? Like, that's different information. And so you start to realize, like, like trying to take market research and put it into a you know, the, the gas engine is different than trying to take and put it into a rocket engine. And it's like it, right. it doesn't work. And so this is where this word unpacking, and, and again, it's a lot of the research techniques we talk about are, are more centered in criminal and intelligence interrogation to get back to what the intent was and what the timeline is, what the causality is, as opposed to trying to get to the, 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 the phrases that resonate with everybody.
1: Right. Here's a question I'd love your take on. Why are startups so, for lack of a better word, like allergic to bringing a sales motion into their business? So, like, you know, I'll give you like the sort of straw man cases, something like this. People look up to and admire businesses that have no sales people at all. So, for example, let's say Basecamp, right? Basecamp do not have a single account development representative or account executive. And as a result, people might infer that base camp don't do sales, therefore we don't need sales, therefore let's not do sales. You, you're not making that argument in your book. No. no. Uh, and I'd love to hear, like, where do you net out? Like, at Intercom, we probably have like over 100 people employed whose job it is to sell, and, and, and yeah. we follow the idea espoused in your book of like they're there. Not to convince, but to en- enable and aid and inform a purchase is really what we think of it as. But when you think about this spectrum of like, we don't have anything to do with sales, we're, it's not, not a part of the day at all. And I know Jason's background was actually started in sales, all the way over to say 100% sales of that business where you, know, you can't even see the software until you've signed a contract. Yeah. Like, how do you think about that framework? What's going on there?
2: Yeah, I think, I think there's a couple of things. One is like when people refer to sales as the necessary evil like it's like then you don't really actually understand sales. Correct. Right. And and Jason actually wrote the forward to the book, right? And in the forward he talks about how he sold shoes when he was, you know, 15, and he knew everything about how uh, tennis shoes were made because he was a sneakerhead. And like and he realized like like nobody cares or they're, they're they're in there because they're they're a waitress and they want to be able to uh, or waiter and they want to make sure their feet don't hurt at the end of the day. They didn't care about any of the materials or any of that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And so. And he realized, you know, and he goes on to say like, you know, you know, and I run a software company where we have no sales or do we, and then we talk about kind of like why do people buy and by understanding how people buy, he's able to be in the right place. He's able to say the right things at the right time. He's able to be like the marketing is, is way more efficient that he doesn't actually have to do it, that he can actually, he knows the, the dominoes that have to fall in people's lives to say today's the day that i need we need base camp right so one of them one of them is 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 classic of like we have a we have a business we're starting to grow we have a few things start falling through the cracks and now we get more business and now we don't know actually you know we've got to get tighter if we're really going to grow and so it's the consumer talking about it's like the 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 wheels are coming off the wagon and it's that panic point of like we've got to get a system and as they start to look the thing is, is that they realize that there are people there who just aren't competent like, or aren't technologically competent to put the system in or use the system. And so they're looking for the easiest thing, the easiest, smallest step that literally puts it in. And so that's how they talk about it. That's how they have landing pages. That's how So they've been able to help the customer discover their way to them as opposed to having somebody who has to be on the phone dialing and dialing up. At the same time, though, the way you guys sell is very similar. Like Chris Beck is now at autobooks and they sell to banks. And the whole thing is, you know, when they first started, it was like, well, we got to get people to the demo. And once they get to the demo, we're going to close, right? And it's you know, demo and close. And the thing that we actually helped them try to unpack was where are they in their buying timeline? And, And they'd say, well, that's where they are in our sales pipeline. I'm like, no, no, no. Where are they? Are they, you know, passive looking? Are they learning about it? Or are they actually, you know, in the deciding, you know, part of it? And like, what's the difference? And we start to realize one of their problems is is that they have one demo that does three different zones of the timeline. And when we do it apart, we were able to actually, you know, almost double the number of conversions. And at the same time, half the time to close. Because we were able to help people move down the the timeline as opposed to be in our sales process. And so it's one of those things where by focusing on our process, we try to make the, the demo efficient, but we actually never realized that we probably needed three different demos.
1: Gotcha. Like uh, uh, we, we wrestle with this a bit internally, and certainly there's other startups that I have either advised or even just had Skype calls with, were so much of the thinking of a startup that began without sales and then tried to add sales, they <laughs> Yes, they miss so many things along the way in doing so. I'm, I'm like, I don't mean to be dismissive of them. Like, we were probably the same, but for sure, during the entire thinking and internal metrics and systems of the company, assumes that like the end user is somehow right. both the head of the security, they're the yeah. VP of marketing, they're the person who logs in every day, yeah. they're also the the legal team, and uh, and and like, and they're at a certain point in a funnel and. They know that they're at that point in that funnel and that that's the only funnel that they're in. And that they have no other job other than getting to the end of your funnel for you. And like when you see all this and you play it back to them, you're like, well, you do realize on their side they have to go through procurement, and they're going to be asked to demonstrate competitors who are at least of sufficient like sufficient similarity and different price point or like different value points, such that they can legitimize the purchase. Because you're asking them for like a couple hundred grand, and it turns out like most businesses aren't that badly run, such that they'll actually sign like a multi-year annual contract for like you know, a couple hundred grand and, and pay for it up front. But all of this, like adapting your sort of thinking from a go-to-market point of view to yeah. get into the sort of uh, shoes of your customer, it seems to be a, a thing a lot of businesses really struggle with.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I just, I remember when we, uh, you know, we had met a couple of times, but by the time we finally said, like, you know, sales had plateaued around 2012, 13, somewhere around there. And it was one of those things like, and the tagline was cradle, we can man- manage your customer data from cradle to cradle grave. Cradle to grave, yeah. And and it was one of those things, and like, well, this is the job we do. And we're like, mm, let's just go talk to people. Mm-hmm. And I just remember, like, uh, Paul was there, and you, and Owen, and mm-hmm. Sean. There were a bunch of people. But it's like the first thing, like, as you started to hear is like you realize, like, oh my gosh, we're 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 literally calling out all these features and benefits, and they they don't they don't even know how to talk about the problem. Like, oh my gosh, we we have how do we handle support or. Like we get people to the door but we can't get it like, and you're talking about all the things they could do and they can't even search for that yet. And so the whole notion of getting them from what we call first thought to passive looking, and then you guys kind of changing not only the marketing, but then the product side of it was, was kind of like, Oh, these are the things that people want. And so to me, to be honest, that's a very common thing where people come at it sales from a marketing perspective and they don't actually think about buying. They just think about attracting, like getting yeah. people in the door as opposed to getting people, helping people make progress. And to be honest, that's the bigger difference is that marketing is about maybe getting attention, but ultimately, really good salespeople, like most people, when you ask, like, tell them about the best sales experience you have. And then you talk to them and say, like, so who is your salesperson? And they'll, they'll say, well, they weren't my salesperson. They were my, you know, uh, concierge, they were my help, like like sales is almost like too bad of a word to say that they were because they were so yeah. much of that, right? And yeah, which
1: I, I think is still a hangover from the days of like you yeah. know, everyone like hates this feeling of being sold to. Yeah. Like it's like it's like this idea of like haggling in a market versus like versus it being like two people trying to share a problem and share a solution and exactly. but both are incentivized to do so. The interesting thing I remember from like the period of time you, yeah, you're describing when we worked together was that uh, we were saying like uh, one of the reality checks for us was like we were just saying too much to customers. We were actually making it hard for them to solve their exact problem because we were telling them all this sort of shit that they didn't care about at the same time too.
2: That's right,
1: that's right. And, and I remember like, you know, like seeing interviews with someone from support being like, well, I really wanted to buy your tool for support, but it sounds like I'd have to talk to the head of marketing too. And I'm right. like, why would well, they need to do that? And they're like, well, because that's the way this looks like it got set up. And I was like, wow. So, and then, like, even like, what's funny is like, fast forward. I guess maybe five years. Last year, I was talking to our head of sales, and I was basically asking a question of like, "Hey, why is it on our enterprise deals we don't, we don't see Intercom get get installed under mobile software as part of that deal initially?" Yeah, and uh, and I was expecting to hear an answer like, "Oh, like the lazy reps aren't pushing it, or we're not like, you know, it doesn't come up with the conversations or whatever." And uh, the answer I got was far more insightful. It was like because. The customers didn't have a problem that that solved, and right. for me, all, all we'd be doing is making the conversation and the discussion more complicated by trying to add stuff in there that's got nothing to do with the desire of the customer. And, and but she was like, "Hey, Des, I get how from your point of view, this is a free thing that we're just throwing in, and it's an extra. Like, is in, hey, if you use intercom, you get it on your mobile too." But she's like, "But like, money is is like far from the main concern here. The actual concern is like time, and yeah. for us to be like, hey, we're also going to install it in the app, it would just." Like it would, it would destroy the deal because you'd have to get all the a mobile app team in, would probably have to get more developers in. Next thing, you will be a discussion about file sizes of the SDK yeah, yeah. that we embed. She's like, why, why would we do that? Why not land, demonstrate the value and then over time, trust in ourselves that the problems we solve in mobile will also appear and they'll talk to us because right. we're going to have a good relationship with them. And what came back to me was you saying to me before, the customer doesn't buy when you're ready to sell. The customer <laughs> buys only when they're ready to buy. And I, when you realize that, you kind of realize you have to just trust that the right things will happen as long as you're doing running a good product, that like they will upgrade when it makes sense. They will uh, buy more products when it makes sense. But all you can do is like influence and nudge and get a bit of awareness. But what you can't do is create demand when it doesn't already exist. Or maybe put a different way, you can't create a struggling moment that they don't have.
2: That's Right. You can make them aware of a struggling moment they might not be aware of. Yeah. But the reality is if the struggling moment doesn't exist, it's very hard to create it. Like that, that's that's the interest. So the interesting thing is you start to then take a step back and look at the bigger things around. So like it's the end of the quarter and we're going to offer a 20% discount to whoever signs by the end of the quarter so we can meet our number. Mm-hmm. Okay? How stupid is that? Really think about this. Like, like I made a guess probably 12 months ago, uh, and the, at the Church of Finance of where we should be at. And I'm willing to actually devalue the product when they're willing to actually pay full price within a, within a couple weeks after the first. But the real is like, we're willing to discount our value and make them feel like they got a deal when the deal doesn't, when you really hear people, like they don't necessarily want a deal, especially when it's a problem they care about because at mm-hmm. some point, who wants to save money on a problem that's causing them a lot of pain? Totally. <laughs> and so you yeah. start to realize there's these bigger other problems that that like the the aspect of treating sales like it's a like a math equation. Well, I got a hundred calls. If I get a, if I get twenty five callbacks, I'm going to get twelve appointments, and those twelve appointments are going to get me to you know th- three proposals, and I'll get one of them. So for every hundred, I get one, and it's just like crank the numbers. It's like yeah, but. Don't you want to know how they do that? Don't you want to know why they want to do that? And so what you realize is we've turned people into like just order takers as opposed to, you know, most professional, we've almost taken the professional part of sales out and put it into literally order takers. And you start to realize like in any real business, salespeople are actually the most important, whether I'm selling you to join as as an employee, whether I'm uh, selling the banks to go or the investors to get um you know money or uh, investment like all sales is at the cornerstone of any startup and the reality is like it is a profession it's not it's not something that's just like order taking
1: right and which which kind of comes back to I, i'm proud of it i think part of this problems it comes back to the same thing i think it's like people reluctantly layer in sales and then what happens is they, they say, okay, well, I guess our customers could talk to sales if they have to. And then, like, and I've heard so many uh, folks express frustration but go, oh, well, why are we employing these people? Like, people were buying it just fine off the website. And I'd always be the one saying, they were just buying it off the website, but they were also just canceling having not really tried it. And you were wasting a load of time running around high-fiving because IBM signed up, only for IBM to quit 11 days later. Uh, and like you're reprioritizing everything because you've got IBM in the door. And, and like, all you're actually doing in those circumstances is you're producing a load of people who are out in the market now saying, oh, that product, I tried that, didn't work. And you, that's not good for your brand. Like, you know, so wh- what sales is, is a, a, as we said earlier, it's like, it's the sort of, it's the real, it's the uh, superpower you offer your customers to to ensure that they can realize the value that you offer them. Uh, and and when, you, when you shift your thinking to that, it becomes like a, a you know, and I guess like, for where there'll be a load of like old school software as a service people like laughing at pure devs for not realizing this like you know until year 10 or whatever but I, I i do think like that there's something generational in this whole um like this last decade or the software where like people seem to think that all business should be conducted 100 self-serve online with, yeah. with with no humans talking to humans but they don't realize that like when you're in a larger company you have larger problems and you've got a complicated deal shape and it's a, it's like it's too multifaceted for it to be a linear funnel sign up. If it was, right. it'd be great, but like it's just, it's not how how that works. Anyway, okay. I I think we should we should move towards rap. One sad thing that has happened since we last spoke, Bob, was the passing of your friend, Professor mm-hmm. Clay Christensen. Mm-hmm. You've described Clay to me before as your teacher, your mentor, your advisor, and and a friend. I look like I I can tell you like you know if if we were not for Clay me and you would not be speaking to give you one example I I saw Clay speak at the Business of Software in 2012 where he gave what was near on a 2 hour lecture and it was enthralling it was probably like one of the best lectures i've ever seen it's still online I you know his legacy I went from Derek to like, obviously reading all of his books following like every interview he ever gave you name it I covered like you know anything that was out there and I could you know but you know, I'm not the subject of this interview. You are. You've had like a kind of front row seat to perhaps one of the most important people in business strategy. What words would you use to describe his lasting legacy?
2: Yeah. So, uh, so <laughs> I got a whole podcast on that. I mean, that's a long. Time. But here's the thing: is one is I would say, first of all, he was humble. He was. He would. He would. He would almost always start from the premise of whatever you just said, I'm not sure. I I don't know what you just said. And so this whole aspect of not knowing and wanting to learn was like at his core. So I had the the luxury of being able to meet with him once a quarter uh, for four hours with no agenda for almost 27 years. And what I would say is every time I'd come to the office, it would be funny because it'd be like, and people would want to kind of come in and sit with us and talk. And he'd be like, no, 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 no. And he'd literally like sit on the, sit on the desk and he'd swing his legs. And he's like a, like a five-year-old kid, just like, okay, what are we going to talk about today? Like just so interested in everything. and, And I would, I would bring things like you know why are there no sales professors like oh my god Dad, that's a great one. where wait I, mean, I had sales professor and then we'd just kind of riff and and we'd end up having and by the time we would leave we'd have these pictures on the, on this whiteboard that were you know whatever we were thinking about at the latest moment about things and so to be honest it was that childlike curiosity and the and the humbleness to basically realize um, he didn't know and that it was about learning and figuring it out and. Um, and his constant wanting to help people like he's like, uh, how will you measure your life is I've literally adapted my life to basically be around that, which is, you know, the, the best way to think about your life is not how much money you have in the bank, but the, the number of people that you've helped and how you've made the world a better place. And so to be honest, it's like, those, those are the three things that yeah. as a leader, he passed on to me and that. So my next book is actually called "Learning to Build," and it's about Clay and Deming and Taguchi and Dr. Willie Moore and these people who who took a dyslexic, illiterate kid from Detroit and um, gave me the, the gifts of theory to help me become, you know, a, a creator of product and services and, and a teacher. Which you know, my my high school uh, career test said I should be a baggage handler or a mail carrier, huh. um, and and. I was a football player, so that kind of made sense for me. But it's like my mom was like, no, you can do better than that. And so the notion of finding these people and being being mentored by them and uh, being peers with them at some point, it was just uh, kind of amazing. So I think, like Clay, I, I think these people come into your life all the time. I think you have to invest as much time into them. So my, I think one of the reasons why Clay and I got so close is all I worried about was how can I help Clay? And all yeah. he worried about is how can I help Bob? And the notion is is when whenever it got to a point where we we like we always wanted to help each other more than we wanted to help ourselves.
1: Beautiful. Uh yeah. And I, I totally agree with you on how well you measure your life. It's an incredible book. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. We'll include all of your relevant links. You're on Twitter as BMesta, uh, your company's Rewired Group, and obviously your most recent book is Demand-Side Sales. Uh, thank you again for the conversation. It's always a pleasure to chat and I hope to do it again about your next book. Thanks. Thanks, guys.
0: We hope you enjoyed Des's chat with Bob Westa. If you did, we'd love you to give us a review. It helps like-minded people like you find our content. We'll be back next week with another episode of Scale by Intercom, featuring CX Accelerator's founder, Nate Brown. We hope you'll join us. This is Intercom on Product.